0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.
1: The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. I had a successful career, an Ivy League education, and led a very rational life. Several years ago, I had a spiritual awakening, developed psychic gifts, and decided to dedicate my life to pursue my purpose and empower others. I'm hungry to learn even more about the incredible potential of the human mind and spirit. On this podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs, executives, scientists, and leaders to hear their stories of transformation, the science behind them and what it means for you to unlock your potential in your life and career. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Welcome to All Possibilities. I'm so glad you could join us today. I'm here with Leslie Booker, who goes by Booker, and she works at the intersection of social justice, yoga, and mindfulness. That is such a fascinating interplay of so many interesting things. Booker, it's so great to have you on the show today. I'm so happy to be here with you, Julie. It's great to see you again. Same here. So I first met Booker um, many, many years ago. It seems when I was doing a um, a training for the Lineage Project, mm-hmm. which um, I guess teaches yoga and mindfulness to youth and especially court-involved youth. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a training on trauma-informed yoga. And so the other the other teacher of that, Chati Chu, she was also on the podcast yeah, yeah. as well. So <laughs> so this is just fantastic to see you again and to to hear more about what you're doing now. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, great. So let's start off by having you share with us your journey in in becoming who you are now
0: what was that like <laughs> the journey his journey wow. yes do you want to get back to the 80s and start with ronald reagan or move <laughs> what, whatever you want to share yeah, yeah. i think I, it's always fascinating
1: to hear you know all the different phases of your life to get here
0: yeah it took me a while to kind of understand how i got here and i was doing a training through um at the un um, a leadership training about a leadership for a new emergence. And so they were asking us, you know, what our emotional mapping was like, that got us to where we were. And I traced it back and realized that it started with Ronald Reagan. Um, in the 80s, when I was a uh, young kid, I was living in uh, the DC area. And I remember seeing people who were experiencing homelessness for the first time. And I had been living in Japan as a younger child. And so it was a very, very different culture. And I had never seen folks living on the street before. So I remember asking my parents, you know, what is going on? And they were saying, oh, these are people are, you know, they're homeless. And even as a kid, I could tell that people were not well, that they were sick, that they needed some more support. And so I was like, but where are their families? Why isn't the government taking care of them? Why aren't they on medication? Like, why aren't we taking care of them, you know, as a country, as a community? Um, and I found out later that was when Ronald Reagan um, – an attempt to offer autonomy to people who had been um institutionalized against their will. He had just closed down a lot of mental institutions during that time. And I was so moved by that. And at that time in my life I realized that I didn't exactly know how I was going to do my work, but it would be something that allowed me to walk next to folks who were suffering, to listen to their stories, to be able to um Being a space where we shared our humanity together. So that was sort of the beginning of that. And then fashion industry. And then, yes, a lot of things happened. How did (laughs) that happen? I know you worked in the fashion industry beforehand. What were you doing there? And how did did that progression take place? Yeah, well, in my late teens, early 20s, I got really involved in activism in the D.C. area and doing it without community, without sangha, but just going in um, with a big, loud, open mouth and closed eyes and closed ears. Um, I got burnt out very quickly. And so instead of trying to stay engaged, I just shut it down and left all of that behind me and ran away to New York and joined the fashion industry. And I was in the industry for close to a decade and was just feeling... And I, during this time, I got back into... I started to explore yoga and meditation kind of at the same time. And really... This fire, this like old activist fire was still burning inside my body. The deeper I got into my practice, like the bigger this fire was happening, which I found really phenomenal, and so I decided to yeah' to, it's a you know a kind of a long trajectory, but um went to nutrition school, started working at a holistic center for a while, and then that's where I met my mentor who brought me into uh, the yoga and meditation world and introduced a lineage project, introduced to New York Insight. And um, yeah, it just sort of snowballed from there. I think as a general statement, I'm just, I have a lot of fire and energy inside my body. So when I see an injustice, I'm like, that's wrong. Let's make it better. And so that's the way that I've always been, you know, as a kid, I spent many a dinner, you know, arguing politics with my dad my dad loved Ronald Reagan when I was growing up and so you know as a small kid like we were like talking politics over the kitchen table and so um yeah it's really hard for me to stand by when I see an injustice happening it's really hard for me to keep my mouth shut or to turn away and walk away from it and so you know when you see suffering in the world it's like how do you turn away from it like my heart inclines towards it yeah and not in a way of like I'm going to help you but like let's figure this out (laughs) that's really like the more of the view that I take on it. Mm -hmm. How does then the yoga
1: and meditation fit into it? Because my, this is my perception, but my perception is that, that when you're doing yoga and meditation, you're just kind of okay with the world, (laughs) (laughs) wherever, whatever's going on, whatever, you know, stuff is hitting the fan. It's, it's like this sense of groundedness and peace. Mm. So I'm curious, like how,
0: How does that relate? Like, how does it help you or how does it help the work that you do? Yeah, I think that's actually the opposite experience for me. Um, You know, and working in jails for so long, I I always tell kids, you know, when we're meditating, like our shit's going to come up. You know, this isn't about spiritual bypassing. This isn't kumbaya, you know, when we are really listening to our body, when we're intuitive, when we're checking in with our wisdom, it gives us information, And then when we're deeply in our practice, when we're investigating the mind states, it brings us right up to our truth. And it also gives us tools to work with. And so it isn't like this um, fluffy, fluffy, you know, clouds and rainbows and butterflies. Like, I would love if that's what my practice (laughs) looked like. Unfortunately, I mean, like, it comes up. All your stuff comes up, and I know how to work with it. And so... um, as I got deeper into yoga and meditation, I was able to just kind of like peel back these layers and be closer to truth and to be able to see the suffering in the world again. And um, it made me really come alive because when I was younger, I didn't have the tools. And so I burst into flames and I burnt myself out. And as I got older, now having these practices of yoga and meditation in my pocket as a as a tool. It gave me something to work with and it gave me language to use as a, as a framework when I was working with vulnerable populations. And so it really helped me to get closer to the fire, closer to the suffering. Um, it really like a nice um, foundation to, to lean upon. Let's talk about your work with vulnerable populations.
1: When you, um, when you teach yoga and mindfulness and this is, or, or meditation and this is kind of going off of what you just shared about how it does. It's a tool for things to come up and for you to look at it and actually be able to deal with it. What what does that even look like? Like, what is the step by step? How do you deal with it? Like, when you when something comes up, what what even happens? And what do you share with people? To, to or how do you guide them to deal with it?
0: I mean, it's so specific depending on people's individual experience and how things are manifesting in their bodies. Um, There's so much information that people give you by their body language about, you know, when the eyes look away, when the body fidgets or becomes still, when there's this need to get up and run away as opposed to staying. And so, um, you I'm constantly watching out for that and asking people to, you know, what's happening right now, so there's really an investigation, inquiry. You know, we're getting really inquisitive about what's happening, and a lot of times, what's happening with folks is that, you know, they're so unconscious to what what they're what they're showing, and so just bringing awareness to that, letting them know how, you know, when you see the body begin to stop fidgeting and to actually find some stillness, and so just making note of that and bringing that into light. Um, has been very useful. For example, I was working with a young man who was um, was known as a kid who had a lot of disciplinary and behavioral issues, and so he was in the SHU, called special housing unit, and so he had to work with a corrections officer one to one. So he was always being supervised in um, a one to one supervision. And before I went in, they said, oh, you know, this kid is never still, he's always fidgety, he can't ever, you know, be still, his mind's always racing, like there's no peace in his body. And so I sat down with him, you know, one to one. And the whole time, like his legs were shaking, he was, you know, tapping his fingers on the, you know, on the table, and, you know, it's really fidgety looking around. And so we just began to talk. Because at first it was like, I don't want to meditate. I don't want to do that because it's like this, this thing, you know, like, you say, oh, we're going to do yoga and meditation. They're like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? And I was like, well, let's just have a conversation. And so I said, like, so I noticed that like, you're, you know, you're tapping your fingers, your legs, what's going on there? And he's like, oh, I, you know, it's how I am. It's just how I am. I can never stop. This is just who I am. Nothing's ever changed it. And, um, and that's a problem with a lot of our kids. It's like, they've been told that this is who they are you know you are a thief you are someone who causes harm you are and so they get caught up in this narrative that there's nothing that they can ever change about who they are especially when they're locked up at 12 13 years old and so we started talking and so i started to just very um slowly walk him through um setting the body up for meditation practice so not letting him know that i was doing that but just saying So let's, you know, bring your feet to the ground and lift your toes up, spread them wide, then bring your toes back onto the earth and just giving him some slight body cues as we were just talking about what was happening during the day. And so after about 10 minutes, after I walked him through instruction of just sitting, his body became a little bit more still. And I said, so let's just take like a single breath together. So I was like, let's breathe in and let's breathe out. And then we continued our talking. And then I was like, let's take another breath together. So integrating our meditation practice while we're just engaging in conversation. And after a few minutes, his body was completely still. And I was like, so do you notice anything happening differently with your body right now? And he looks down. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm not shaking anymore. And I'm like, yeah. Wow. So it's really beautiful for them to have... Um, to know in his body, to see it for himself without me saying, this is going to do A, B, and C. He actually had the embodied experience for himself. And um, so it was really lovely. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. incredible. Just to to hear that you kind of walked him through very seamlessly this awareness that he he could do something else other than, you know, what everyone has been telling him, this is who you are, this is how you're going to behave. Yeah.
0: It's really empowering for young folks to know this, to have autonomy, to not be heavily medicated, but to actually use their own breath, their own their own body, to find a little bit of like a spaciousness from that reactionary mind. It's incredibly empowering. So, yeah.
1: That makes me think about just what drives me, which is freedom. And choice, and with the work that I've done over the years with, um, with low-income high school students, we're just seeing, seeing what really brings out their full potential. How do you, how do you see freedom and choice related to what you just talked about?
0: Very connected. You know, I work with a lot of folks. Um, historically, I've worked with a lot of folks who have experienced. A lot of trauma in their lives, whether it's developmental trauma, um, the trauma of um, growing up without resources, um, the trauma of being incarcerated at a young age. And so one of the definitions of trauma is that it is um, a choiceless situation. It's a thread of all folks who have experienced trauma, that there is a time when their autonomy and their choice has been taken away from another person or, or a circumstance around them. And so as we're in our practice to offer a lot of different options about where the arm goes where the fingers go how we take our our sitting posture all of those things give a lot of autonomy and um empower and back to folks who have had that taken away from them
1: and and i would yeah. think that this goes for people who um who may be listeners who may be thinking oh i don't know like i feel like i have a lot of choice and autonomy in your world but but there, there may not be like, there may be instances where you're thinking, oh, my mom has taken away my choice from me (laughs) or my boss or, you know, my financial situation or something. Mm -hmm. And, and so how, how would you, um, guide people who might see themselves in a similar situation?
0: Yeah. We get so caught up in this narrative of this is how it is. This is how it's going to always be. And it doesn't have to be that way. I was teaching at New York Insight last night and we were speaking a lot about discernment. So having that clarity of creating, um, uh, you know, boundaries. So you may not be working with vulnerable populations
1: now. How does this freedom and choice tie into the work you're doing?
0: Yeah, I'm working, you know, more with people who are working in direct service agencies. So I'm working with, uh, with the staff and I'm doing more training. So training folks to work with the populations that I was working with for a long time and, you know, still very deeply rooted in activism. And, um, and I find that the practice is becoming more and more relevant now as we are living in kind of a wacky world right now, you know, we got Nazis running around and stuff (laughs) and, um, And we live in a, in a culture that is founded upon greed, hatred and delusion, the three poisons. And so I think that, you know, oftentimes people think, well, I have to hate. I have to hate my enemy. I have to, you know, take this before you take it from me. And there's this delusion that that is how we gain power, that that is strength, that that is moving forward in life. And there's something really about taking a pause and seeing the humanity in others because it allows us to have this freedom from holding on to anger and holding on to hatred in our bodies and allows that to let go a little bit so that we can um really create the world that we want to live in because it doesn't have to be one of like this greed and this hatred and this pulling and this i'm gonna get mine before you know you take away from me
1: This is a great place to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about what the world can look like. We'll be right back. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Hey everybody, this is Vikram Iyer, former advisor to President Barack Obama. Have you been opening your Twitter account or Facebook feeds or even just talking to families and friends and wondering what the heck is going on in this country? Well, it's not as bad as you think, but we're going to unpack that for you. Join me at the American Enough podcast on the Mount Media Network as we unpack the policies, executive orders, and daily kerfuffles that are shaping not just this administration, but the modern face of America's politics.
0: Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found.
1: back with booker who works at the intersection of social justice yoga and mindfulness so booker you were talking about this world of greed Mm -hmm. and and delusion so and hatred and hatred (laughs) (laughs) the the, the three the three things the three poisons three poisons so Mm -hmm. what does what does the opposite look like like what is the world that we are either striving for or that we are living in and maybe bits and spurts what what does that look like
0: yeah I think that we've been trained in this culture to to be so competitive to be so to not have compassion to not have love for our neighbors you know, in mainstream dominant culture, there is this thing where we have to get ahead of everyone else. So no matter who gets in the way, we need to squash them down. And we forget that if we actually reach out and lift everyone up together, though, we can actually arrive to where we want to be quicker. Um, and right now, there's so much fear happening in the world. You know, we see this down in Charlottesville and around the country where there is this fear that dominant culture is being removed, that, um, you know, that Jews and Blacks are, you know, coming over to take away from, as opposed to this understanding that we're all just trying to like be on an even playing field, you know? So there is this fear that people are losing their power. And is that all in their head or is it kind of true or what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that power is is a delusion, you know, and I think that oftentimes people think that if you are powerful, if you have influence, that you have to squash another down to get there. And so that's a delusion that we're living in. And so people thinking that because people who have historically been marginalized are having more education, having more access, having more privileges, that that takes away from them. Which is actually not true at all but you know something that keeps coming uh back into my mind lately is this quote by audrey lord and she says that the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house and so in this culture we have been this house that we have that has been built in this country has been one of like coming in and taking away coming in and destroying culture that is already there so we can assert we I'm using that very lightly Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that, you know, we dominant culture can come in and, um, and to create this kind of world, which is, you know, this power over as opposed to power with this, I'm going to dismantle what is already established and then come in and create what I think that, you know, that I want or that my people need. So without seeing the culture, the history, um, the, the relationships, the family that's already been created in different communities and cultures, and so as communities are being torn apart, us going and using those same tools of hatred and power over and greed, these are the master's tools that we are, have been trained um, can dismantle man, mantle the, the master's house, which is simply not true. Those have been putting a lot of barricades and blockades in our way. And so that isn't working. It isn't working because it creates a lot of um, disconnection and separation and isolation and segregation. And it creates this, I am right, you are wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, that isn't really working. So it's more of a and like this and also as opposed to this, but not that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we need to change what our tools are. I think we need to lean into relationship, lean into listening to the other, even if we don't agree with them. But there's something in there that kind of brings us together there. You know, people are scared of losing what they've already have always had. And so they're going to fight for it. And so us fighting, fighting, fighting isn't really creating anything useful for anyone. But if we actually put down our guns and our swords and our knives and whatever these tools that we have and actually listen to each other, lean in, um, finding the humanity, finding our shared story, Um, I think that we can really get much further than we are right now. Do you see pockets of that happening? I do. I do. Um, You know, when I was an activist in my younger years, I was always fighting against. I was like, who does not believe in what I believe? I'm gonna spend more time with you and spend my time fighting against you. And I realized that actually doesn't work. because, um, You know, pe- no one was trying to budge on either side, you know. But when I found people and my activism now was really surrounded by spiritual community by spiritual leaders, And so when I'm around people who are more like-minded, who have the same intention to move forward with love, with compassion, with listening a little bit deeper, then I'm then able to see the changes that are happening. I am able to see that there's like a little push, that window has been opened, that door has been cracked open because I'm trying to work with as opposed to working against and I think that's sort of what's been the flip for me around using my practice to really influence my activism is I'm not trying to fight against, I'm like, what can I do right now with what I've got? And it's been really useful to um, be able to use this fire as a catalyst, as opposed to the thing that burns me up and leaves me in ashes.
1: Right. Because when, when you're always fighting against something, it's like hitting up against a brick wall
0: Absolutely. all the time. Yeah. And you just, and you get And, exhausted. and thinking, that yeah. it'll change. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's ridiculous. Like, clearly that has never worked before. Why should it begin to work right. now? Yeah. And so I we see, have to I really see. like change the paradigm of what it looks like, you know, of anger isn't working. How do we transform that anger into useful action? You know so how do we break that apart and understand that my anger is actually fear and sadness and um, you know this worry that my family is not going to be provided for if i break that down i understand that that's what anger actually is in my body it might also what might be what is the anger in your body so if we can break that down and actually be in dialogue and in conversation and in relationship with each other, we can see that there is the same thing that we're fighting for, maybe in opposite sides. but I really believe that there is a way that we can um, come together and to find some sort of resolution.
1: It's almost like when people see that that all of the fear that they have and the anger and all these emotions stem from because they they love their family or they Mm. love, they love um, whatever aspect of their life that they, they want to keep, they want to keep having Mm -hmm. that that's, that's so universal. Yeah. And when there's a common ground, then, then it's almost like the, the, the defenses fall just a little bit, just enough, just
0: a little (laughs) bit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: In order to see that, you know, there is something shared. Mm -hmm. between us even though we might not look the same or have the same agenda or the same party or whatever yeah that that there can be
0: common ground yeah and i really love and i'm um doing workshops or trainings or public speaking right now i really love to incorporate uh storytelling circles i find it so useful for just all of these labels to go away you know what you do for a living, your political affiliation, the color of your skin, your religion. When we just take all of that away and we tell our story, it's amazing how much of a thread there is, how much of a connection that people can find with each other. And so, it's been a, a really useful um, tool, you know, that I've been using. So again, like finding new tools to to dismantle this house of oppression that we've created in this in this country.
1: So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about dharma. Mm. What what <laughs> is dharma? And it, it may even relate to what we've been talking about, but what what is it and and how do you see it kind of fitting into to our conversation?
0: Yeah, so dharma very a quick definition is just truth. It's just the truth. And dharma in the Buddha's sense, um, the Buddha offered the three gems are the three jewels. So the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So the Buddha being the enlightened one, the teacher, the Dharma being the teachings, which are the truth, and the Sangha being the community that practices together. And I love the Dharma. I really do. Um, and Buddhism, there's a lot of list. (laughs) You know, it's an oral history for you know, for a very, very long time. And so the Buddha made a lot of list, you know, the three poison, the five hindrances, the eightfold path, the seven factors of enlightenment, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was a way to just speak the truth about what's happening you know, the four noble truths there is suffering there's a reason for suffering for suffering here's a way out of your suffering and then here's how you do it which leads into the eightfold path and so it's so concrete um that it's just the truth for me uh the dharma i love it because there's nothing dogmatic around it and the buddha gave the the invitation to come see for yourself So that's one of his teachings. Come and see for yourself. Here's something that I've experienced that I've learned through my own practice, and I'm happy to share it with you. And go out and see how it works in your own life. Don't believe what I say. Believe what your experience is. And so I really love that invitation. I think it's one of those things that has really uh, turned me on to Buddhism. And what allows me to stay is that I don't have to believe everything, you know, they say that Buddhism is sort of a a spiritual practice for skeptic folks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not necessarily a skeptical person, but I, I like to challenge. I like to challenge things and I just keep showing up as like, oh yeah, that is actually the truth. Can you break it down even
1: more for, for me in terms of like, what, what does it mean to experience truth? Mm. In in how you've described Dharma and and how do you do it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> in two minutes, go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I um a thing around suffering, you know, suffering is part of the human condition. But do I need to like stay in it? You know, is there a way that I can like wiggle myself out of it or to see a way out of it? And Often I find that when there is something so intense happening in my life or in other people's lives, people that I'm working with, and when we spend time talking about, you know, what is actually the truth of it and what is a, you know, what is a mind state, you know, what is a narrative that we've created in the mind. You know? And so I love that we have so many different practices and so many different ways in the Dharma to understand, like, is that a hindrance? You know, is that really what I believe or is that just my restlessness showing up? Or is that my aversion showing up? And so we can name things. And once we name it, they take away, it takes away the power they have over top of us. So that's my aversion showing up. Okay. And then no more power. Aversion's gone. Moving through.
1: All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, Booker and I will talk about what is coming up for her and and also how you can get more involved in your own dharma. (laughs) We'll be right back. If you're a business decision maker, you should listen to this. The show you're listening to is produced by Mouth Media Network, a podcasting network focused on the business of lifestyle. Because of our team's background and deep connections with brands, influencers, and ecosystems, we offer a tremendous opportunity to bring your company's message and products in front of decision-makers from several verticals, including fashion, beauty, travel, materials and textiles, health and fitness, and lifestyle. Reach out to the Mouth Media team now at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Let's explore how we can collaborate and make Mouth Media Network a meaningful resource to share your message and grow your business. Again, that's podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. All right, we are back with Booker. And let's dive right in and see what you're up to now.
0: What's what's coming up for you? So I'm excited. BQ Bodhi is a huge um, inspiration to me. He is a Buddhist scholar and monk and radical activist, and huge inspiration to me. So I'm really excited to be able to be on the rolling retreat with him and Reverend Angel Kilda Williams and Greg Snyder. We're going to take a busload of folks down to D.C. for the March for Racial Justice. And along the way, we'll be offering teachings both um, separately and collectively to talk about the importance of holding our practice while um, engaging in the world that we're living in today. So I'm really excited to be doing that with them. And, you know, something that I learned... During um, the Occupy Wall Street movement, I had gotten – I was in the middle of a training, one of my long-term trainings through Spirit Rock, and I came back and Occupy had broken out. And I spent a lot of time going to Occupy and listening to people's stories and what was going on and what they needed and, you know, what was – doing a lot of um, of the trainings, um, the teachings that were happening down there. Because I wanted to get involved, but I wasn't sure exactly how. And I'd taken a long break from activism, you know, from my younger years. when I was like screaming and yelling and kicking cops. <laughs> you know, in the meantime, I developed this like beautiful, you know, practice. And I was trying to figure out how to incorporate the two together. And in being in relationship and holding that, that practice of deep listening, I was really understanding that folks needed a space to be human. You know, I think that when you're on the front lines as an activist, there's an expectation for you to be a martyr, to not sleep, to not rest, to not take care of your own body, to kind of keep pushing forward for the movement. And what I was hearing from folks is that they were exhausted and they were really tired and they wanted to stay there and they wanted to keep going. But with Occupy, people were living in Zuccotti Park and it was a um, a 24-hour way of living. And so... I started the meditation working group with a a group of folks to offer a little bit of break in the middle of the day in Zuccotti Park. So we would offer metta meditation, loving kindness meditation. And in a way to kind of bring them back to their humanity, to bring some compassion, some love for themselves so that they could take a break. They could get something to eat. They could take a little bit of a rest. They could step out and go for a walk to kind of buoy and reclaim their energy before jumping back in. And then from there, um, is when I started Urban Sangha project to help support the sustainability. So people started to request more about being deeper into their bodies. And so we took them outside of Zuccotti Park to offer um, mindful movement, meditation, and compassionate dialogue. And so that's when I realized that there is something about this integration of of mindfulness and activism. And that's when I understood it from myself. The Buddha knew about this 2,600 years ago. And, you know, many folks identified the Buddha as, you know, a pretty radical activist for his time, you know, creating the Bhikkhuni order. So allowing women to ordain, um, teaching to all different caste systems, all the different caste systems in in the area at that time. And so it's when I really began to see that his teachings just mapped on so beautifully to really support folks who were suffering in the world. It gave us some a foundation and a format and understanding um, so that we could really work with our suffering to know that suffering wasn't something that we needed to live in, that we weren't suffering just for the sake of suffering, that there was a reason for it, and there is a way that we can move out of it. And here is like, this beautiful path laid out. And so it really became a way for me to understand how to navigate working with vulnerable populations, how to navigate my activism into the work that I was doing, to really be able to take a moment to take a pause and to kind of recalibrate and get more clarity around my mind, my intention for being there. And if my actions and my intentions were in alignment, if they were playing well, you know, playing nicely together. And so, so I think that's really, you know, where the, um, the rubber hits the road is to really take, um, the practice into action. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been able to stay with Buddhism because whatever arises in my body in my mind in my world around me, there's something for me to rest upon and to find clarity and to find truth. And I'm like, oh, and like, it's never failed me. Like it's pretty phenomenal
1: how can people get involved in their own form of action? Are there any organizations they should look into or, um,
0: any, any steps you'd recommend for our listeners? You know, really listening to what is calling you, there's so many different organizations out there right now. I don't want to promote anyone. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of different ways for folks to integrate into the world, whether folks are interested in, you know, running or yoga or meditation. There are so many different organizations that are fusing together embodied practices with being engaged in the world. Yeah, so mindfulness in America, it is... um, A thing that Anderson Cooper did on 60 Minutes, a segment that he did, um, which really picked up steam and Soren Gordhammer, who started Wisdom 2.0, they've collaborated to create this Wisdom um, Mindfulness in America conference, which will be October 9th, I believe, in the city. And it's going to be, you know, a lot of leaders in the mindfulness world who are coming together to talk about how they're really integrating their mindfulness practice into day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something to check out if you're in the New York City area or um, if you're familiar with um, Wisdom 2.0. They definitely do a lot of um, kind of integrating leaders in different industries with these practices. What do you see yourself doing in five or even 10 years?
0: (laughs) Well, it's funny. I, I just started a four-year teacher training to be a retreat Dharma teacher. And so um, I'll be just graduating from teacher training <laughs> So at least the next four years. Um, you know, doing what I do, I offer mentoring to different folks, I'm doing a lot of public speaking. I'm still doing trainings to teach folks how to offer the practices of yoga and mindfulness to vulnerable populations. So still integrating these three worlds of social justice, yoga, and mindfulness is really what I do. And it's going to keep manifesting in different ways. I'm not doing as much direct service work as I did for over a decade. I'm now doing um, more uh, trainings, um, working with the staff, the faculty, um, the executive leadership team of organizations that I was working with doing direct service before um, and i'm I'm such a the trickle down theory doesn't typically work in a lot of cases, but i I found that in working in jails for so long that I would teach these beautiful practices to to the folks I was working with, whether they be incarcerated youth or people living with addiction or people experiencing homelessness. And it was such a beautiful practice, but then when I left and they were left back in the institutions, there wasn't a culture created. And so the practices that we offered kind of fell away without having the infrastructure to keep it going and to hold it in place. And so... That's why I start, started to now work with executive leadership teams of these organizations to really start the work at the top and then allow it to tickle, trickle down. And so it becomes really um, a changing a paradigm and a changing of thought and a changing of culture within the organization. So by time it hits the client, um, it's really deeply integrated and rooted in how organizations run. And so I'm hoping that the work will be more sustainable um, by doing it that way. And it's really lovely to, to be able to reach, um, a larger audience and, in, in doing my work in this way through trainings and, and, and talks around the country.
1: I love how even in your own work,
0: you've kind of noticed
1: where things have worked and where th- there's still, yeah. where there's still gaps and yeah. that you've kind of evolved over time to, um, kind of target different populations or kind of work on this kind of leadership top-down level. And kind of going along with that, what do you see are still some obstacles that exist for this field, this field, broadly speaking, meaning mm. maybe it's consciousness, maybe it's spirituality, maybe it's activism, like all of it melded together. What what do you see as obstacles that still exist that you want to um see shift in the next
0: I don't obstacle it's more of like opportunities, <laughs> opportunities <laughs> like something exactly. to play perception. with perception yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um you know it's been so organic my evolution of work throughout the years it's always just been I'll be doing something and then I'm like, Oh, what's happening over there. And then I I move my attention and my work and my focus over there. So it's been very organic, the way that my work has evolved over the past 10 or 12 years. And so, you know, right now, I'm really loving working with all different folks. I'm working with um, people who are You know, board members of huge organizations who are executive leaders, who are CEOs, and just hearing how, again, even though they might be in different industries, again, like hearing the stories that there's like this, this thread that's sort of running through. And so, Offering these practices, offering these tools, offering this new way of thinking, and again, being able to see our employees, our staff, our clients as human beings, as opposed to like these labels that we need to kind of like, you know, push through um, is something that that's really calling to me really being in relationship with folks. You know, in the Buddhist teachings, it wasn't just about sitting on your cushion, closing your eyes and shutting it down. So many of the teachings were about being in relationship. How do, we, how do we meet with people who are challenging? How do we meet with people who are trying to harm us or push us down? And so I'm really um, working with folks about this relational piece, taking away this hierarchy, taking away, um, you know, these narratives and the, these boundaries that we put between us and other and really diving back into relationship. And I find that's really where my work is, is you know, very organically guiding me lastly
1: how can our listeners get in touch with you
0: so very easily they can find me at lesliebooker.com you can find a list of all the things that are coming up for me you can sign up for my monthly newsletter um yeah so that's probably the best way to to find me
1: well booker it was so great to have you on the show today and i wish you all the best of luck in your upcoming engagements and with the dharma work that you're doing thank you julie so great to see you again thank you and to our listeners thank you for joining us take away your own truth and see how you can shift your perception of suffering in your life however that shows up for you and until the next time be on the lookout for all possibilities Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us.